I know a little bit about your background in history, but I realized aside from knowing that you, you spent some time at the monastic Academy at Maple, um, before you came, um, to join the bright mind team, I realized I didn't really know a whole lot about your background and story and like how you got, even how you got to, to the monastic Academy. And, you know, I, I was curious, maybe we could start there a little, little bit of background. Sure. Yeah. It'd be great. Great. Yeah. Uh, so I I started meditating when I was a kid in Vermont when I was like 15. Uh, I just was really curious about spirituality. And luckily, I had a really awesome was willing to teach me. And her background was more in shamanic Native American practices. And so that was actually my first sojourn into meditation. Uh, We did sweat lodges and stuff. And I, I had some pretty significant experiences as a kid meditating in the woods. And, um, but then when I was 21, um, my health really fell apart. I got Lyme disease when I was 18 and it got Mm. really bad. It got really bad when I was 21. I ended up having to take time off of college. And, um, um, that's when I really got into meditation. I, I met Shenzhen during a year off of college and, Really, really inspiring. Just the way that he taught, everything that I had done before kind of fit in. Shenzhen Young. Yes, Shenzhen Young. Um, and um, so that's when I started practicing and teaching a lot. And around that time, Shenzhen was encouraging his students to begin teaching and giving out resources and support around teaching. And so I just started jumping in and um got some good feedback and was having lots of fun. And at one point I had a very impactful sit. I was meditating on restfulness in the body and the mind and my body filled with energy. And at that moment I was like, Whoa, this is not just a hobby. Meditation is something that is really bringing meaning back into my life, which had kind of been long story short, it had been kind of waning um, because of my health issues. And at that point I was like, Oh, I want to do residential training. Um, this isn't just something that I do for 10 minutes a day. This is something I want to dedicate my life to. And, and you were 21 at that point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, I talked to Soryu Foral, who's another teacher in, um, and he's friends with Shenzhen and collaborates with Shenzhen as well. And so I I talked to Soryu and said, because I know that I knew that he had gone to a monastery in Japan when he was my age. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Should I do it? And we had a fateful conversation. He said, you know, Toby, I've been thinking about creating a residential training program for people like you. So you don't have to go to Asia. Um, We can set something up. And I was like, Whoa, let's do that. And (laughs) that was actually kind of the birth of, uh, the monastic academy, which is now this awesome, fully fleshed out training program with a location and beautiful rural Vermont and like 20 residents training full time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it took a while to like some, raise some funds and get organized. So I went back to school. I went back to college. I, I studied at Vassar College. And in that time, I did a bunch of things. One of the things I did was a really cool independent research project uh, where I taught a bunch of my classmates different styles of meditation and then did qualitative interviews on the effects that it had on them. And that was a really awesome opportunity to take a deep dive and I, uh, into uh, how to teach meditation and the different ways of practicing and what are we really measuring. And I worked with Shenzhen a lot on that. He was really helpful in terms of the experimental design. And that, so that was a really good experience for me to get more experience teaching under my belt. And so then when I finished uh, school, I immediately joined the monastery, which at that point had been set up awesomely. And I trained there for a year and a half. Soryu is the teacher there. And that was really impactful. Um, Deepened my practice. Also learned a lot about humbleness and about um, seeing from other people's perspectives and collaboration. And that's also where I met Daniel Thorson, who's a a common Mm -hmm. friend of ours. And 
he was a, a, an awesome mentor for me in terms of how to work in an organization and how to host meetings. And that um, has been really helpful for me in my current work with BrightMind. And so kind of cutting ahead, I was, I was thinking of leaving the monastery and I had also fallen in love, which is kind of hard to be in love if you're at a monastery. So I was really looking to leave. And uh, I got a call from Christian Stiller, who is now my business partner at BrightMind. And he said, hey, I, I heard about you uh, through Shenzhen. I'm looking to start an app. I need someone who um, can handle the content side of things. Do you, do you want to help? And I was like, uh, yeah, that sounds like a dream job. So it was just perfect timing. And that was three years ago. Um, and I've been working with Christian ever since. I started out doing mostly content, writing the guided meditations, designing our curriculum. But I very quickly learned product design, user acquisition on the job. Uh, and, and, you know, these days do all sorts of everything, really. And uh, so that pretty much brings us up to today where I have um, a job that I'm really, really engaged in. I'm able to scale quality meditation instruction and, you know, still trying to maintain a practice, uh, a deep practice, which is a challenge. But um, I also think the having a project that's really impacting the world in a way is accelerating my practice. Um, I think it's helpful to have, you know, a foot in both worlds. I think that there can be lots of positive feedback between the two. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of, uh, my background and how I got to where I am today. Mm -hmm. And the two worlds that you're mentioning being like the sort of meditative contemplative world and the sort of entrepreneurial and business world on the other hand. Yeah. And I, and I would add to the entrepreneurial business world, um, for social benefit. So making the world a better place. Mm. Uh, yeah. that's really the North star to me, making the world a better place is the North star. And if all sorts of business models can support that depending on the context. So you have nonprofit, you have for-profit it, you know, uh, yeah, it can be, um, for benefit is an emerging kind of sector that's been interesting to watch too. The, uh, the whole yeah. for benefit thing. Right. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying though. The north, the north star for you is is being a benefit, kind of the bodhisattvic uh, intention there, coming yeah, through in your, in your work in the world. Yeah, and it's it's great to me. I love seeing when folks bring their practice off the cushion out of the monastery and into the world, in part because it's like, oh yeah, that's I think you know what is the point of practice. Uh, mm -hmm. At some point, you know, so sometimes the point is to, to look at oneself and to take care of oneself. And it is, you know, a healing self, self-improvement and healing project. Like I get that and that's valid, but it seems like if that's all it ever is, <laughs> then it's really, really, um, unfortunate that, that the benefits yeah. are getting shared, shared more broadly. Yeah. No, I remember when I was talking to Soryu, the head teacher at the monastery about my intentions of leaving. Um, he kind of gave the metaphor of w walking forward on a path, which is like, you know, you've been in the monastery, the next step forward for you may be to step into the world and engage the world and don't think of it as a step away, but think of it as a step forward on a, on a unifying path. And it was helpful to get validation from my meditation teacher that like, this is a spiritual pursuit and now it's time to integrate and a few years down the road, you may come back to a, a place of intensive training. And uh, I actually think that that's, yeah, one of the things that they're doing uniquely at the Monastic Academy is encouraging people to spend a year or two in deep practice, a year or two in the world, and then come back a year or two in deep practice, and then a year or two in the world. Whereas traditional monasteries, you'd stay for like 10 years and then just right. like go into the world. And I actually think that there's some potentially some cool innovation there where you're going back and forth and trying to integrate and build up a, a practice more, I don't know, like stably. Yeah. It's interesting. What you're describing sounds similar to me to the similar, albeit different to the insight meditation model, the retreat model where you're kind of coming right. in and out of retreat. This is, these are longer durations you're yeah. talking about. Um, and I know the context is different as well. You know, it's not the same 
being a resident probably at the monastic academy as it is being on say the three-month retreat at the insight meditation society but still there's some way in which the similarity of kind of that oscillating alternating perspective um, is an interesting one to explore and i i certainly found a lot i i've grown a lot in in working with that tension in the on the insight path of being kind of retreat versus normal life and you know i think where i came to was a point for me that was sort of sort of uh more 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 integral i think more kind of emphasizing bringing contemplative awareness into my life as it is and my life becoming a lot more monastic looking than most people's so Mm -hmm. but you know what does it look like for a whole community to do that um you know and going in and out of of these kind of very different environments Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting (laughs) open question i guess (laughs) you have to tell us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, okay, Toby, this is interesting. So there's a couple things I wanted to go back to that you shared. One is you'd mentioned um, your first mentor was in the sort of shamanic tradition. What, uh, what was their background? What what did they, how did they train? Uh, Have you heard of Tom Brown Jr.? Sure haven't. Uh, He is a teacher in New Jersey in the Pine Barrens. And he is a spiritual teacher, but he integrates spiritual practice with survival skills. So you learn, you know, fire by friction and shelter and food gathering and animal tracking awareness exercises. And it's all kind of imbued with spiritual teachings. And you also learn formal meditation techniques. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's he kind of is mixed with some controversy he's written some some books about the teacher that he learned from grandfather and there's some controversy as to whether or not those are true stories regardless the the core spiritual teachings are awesome and uh so, so supposedly he learned from an apache elder and so the training that he gives is very similar to supposedly what you would learn if you were a if you were being raised as a shaman in a traditional Apache tribe in the Southwest. Um, so, uh, so that was her background and she, she continues to to study with Tom and they, you can, you know, you can go for like a week long intensive where you learn skills, but also learn meditations. And I guess like the main uh, framing for this community is that surviving in the woods is indistinguishable from spirituality. And, you know, even Shinzen talks about this in terms of the life of the hunter gatherer, you didn't really need to meditate because your life was filled with meditative activity. You were connected to, um, your food. You were, uh, you know, if you, if you spend all day mashing roots or something like that, you just, you drop into a meditative state. And so I think there's a lot of validity to that, that if you're living with the land, especially in a hunter gatherer, uh, way you, you drop into meditative states constantly and, um, awareness in, in order to track an animal, you have to have sensory clarity. You have to be able to notice tiny details in you know, how dirt is thrown. So there are all these kinds of, you know, koans, you could say that you have to figure out if you're going to be, if you're going to be surviving in the woods. So yeah, they explore kind of the, the integration of, of survival living and, and spiritual practice. Hmm. Uh, maybe, um, I'll, I'll try, I'm going to try to build a bridge from, from where I'm sure. sitting and what you're sharing and, and kind of where I wanted to go, uh, where, where I, I'm, I have an interest in going in this conversation. Um, and that is, I'm, I'm curious to talk about your work with bright mind and, you know, I'm realizing as you shared that experience, um, you know, kind of where you're first introduced to practice, um, I'm sitting right now in my house, um, in the Blue Ridge mountains of Western North Carolina, which used to be Cherokee land before mm. my ancestors, our ancestors came and, you know, took it from them. And, um, I know from my friends who are kind of connected to the contempt to the, to the elders in this tradition, one of whom recently passed grandmother Redleaf, 
um, that there is a great hesitancy to share the uh, spiritual teachings. In fact, even the most open of the elders seem to, at least in the Cherokee tradition, I, I can't speak more broadly than this, than what I've heard, but they, they're very reticent to share their tradition uh, and have even committed to not sharing certain esoteric teachings because of the history, you know, um, of, of our recent history. And it's funny because as you're talking, I can also tap into and recognize what you're saying is true, that there is this deep, even even at a, a longer time scale than, than, than our recent national history in the last several hundred years, there is this longstanding, just human, you know, tradition of like living off of the land. And it's all of our ancestors uh, originally mm -hmm. come from that, come from there. Um, it's the common, our common tradition and the specific manifestations of how that's played out in the mo modern world and all that. It's like so much more, there's a lot of complications and here's the bridge. I see similar kinds of things also in the Buddhist tradition and Asian Buddhism coming to the West. Um, you know, all of our teachers, I think uh, probably, uh, you know, if you're talking about Shenzhen, Soryu, mine, Jack Cornfield and others, they all, you know, went to Asia to, to kind of learn, some other way of living. And then they came back or have come back to share what they've learned and to, you know, in that process is a process of interpretation of translation, um, of potential, uh, good and, uh, not so great forms of appropriation. Um, and, you know, I think I see, I see very much the work you're doing with bright mind and the work we're doing with Buddhist geeks, I'll be different kinds of work. We're all also continuing along that same arc of translation. And so there's a weird way in which right now I feel like culturally there's this kind of reckoning happening, you know, in this present day to recognize our kind of racial history and see how that is a, uh, the way that we don't have to normally pay attention to that, how that is, is coming up right now in our faces. And mm -hmm. I've been really thinking a lot about, you know, the Buddhist tradition and kind of where my stuff comes from. Like if I am appropriating it, how, and is, am I appropriating it well or not so well, what are the results? And, mm -hmm. um, and I see too, with the meditation apps, and I think you all are in this unique position where you really are trying to take traditions and, um, you know, teachers and lineages. And you're trying to, in some sense, translate some of that to a, a digital platform. And that's different than a lot of other meditation apps who are not trying to do that. I'd say they're really more looking at the commercial potential mm -hmm. and seeing right. an opportunity to build a platform and gain a kind of, you know, network effect, um, and just be sitting pretty, <laughs> yeah. not all of them, but there's a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah. So just, I wanted to share all that and just get your thoughts. And it feels like this is a kind of time where if two, two uh, white guys are going to sit down and talk, you know, we got to address these issues as well. Absolutely. And bring them, bring Absolutely. Them into the conversation. Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks for bringing that up. And um, yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's, it's new and novel, but it, I think it's also important to remember the history of, Buddhism in Asia is is one of appropriation as well, right? So uh, Chinese Zen was absolutely a split from the more traditional forms, and one of the they were actually one of the first to de-emphasize textual study and deistic, more religious focused practices, um, and similar critiques were levied at Zen at, in, at the time where like, you're going to create spiritual monsters that have lots of power and persuasion, but aren't steeped in a religious, as much of a religious theology and ethics and, mm -hmm. and framework. And so I don't think that it's unique to modern America. I think that it's a, a process that's kind of been going on, but I, I do think that you could say that there there is a significant phase shift or something like it is there is something radically unique about what's going on in modern america and especially as you say with the move towards technology it's like you know i don't know i guess technology really makes everything 
the themes that we see in the world may have been seen before, but the pace at which they're developing is accelerated. Everything in our world is accelerating. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think of what we're doing with Bright Mind uh, as really just putting a, on the one hand, putting a piece of sand on top of a hill of innovation, of how to teach meditation better and how to empower people to change the world for the better. Like, how do we do that? There's been thousands of years of teachers that have been doing that in a way we're actually not doing that much on the one hand. And on the other hand, as you say, um, modern America is a very rapidly growing and evolving place and technology is developing at such a fast rate. And all of a sudden everyone has access to the internet and their smartphones. And how do we teach meditation and do so skillfully is like a really, really complex question. And it's one that I think about every day and I've been doing so for years. And I don't think that I have any kind of clear answers. Uh, I have a lot of questions and I, I, I think, yeah, so it's an ongoing process. And so, you know, we have some ideas of, of how to do that. And I think we are doing a pretty good job, but it's going to be, it's going to be an ongoing process. It's, it's going to involve feedback and trial and error. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we're at in, in terms of how I think about those two things. Hmm. Okay. So for, for, for you, it sounds like meditation is kind of uh, evolving in, in the modern kind of American, uh, certainly the American context we're talking about specifically here, but I know not all of your users are going to be from America, right? You've probably got right. a number of folks yeah, in, all internationally over. as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And are you, uh, you know, Bright Mind is primarily in English or do you all have translations as well that you're working on? Uh, it's only in English. We would love to have meditations in other languages. And of course we intend to do that. It just, you know, yeah, you have to a, prioritize that's, that's resources. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we've been thinking about the same with Buddhist geeks and, and just wanting to get a lot of our material translated. It's um, mm -hmm. a huge opportunity to share uh, stuff and especially in the Spanish speaking um, world. But anyway, um, yeah, that's great. And so it sounds like for you that there's a lot of evolution and you see what you're doing, not, not as a, a, in some ways you said, it's not like you're changing a significant amount in what you're doing, but you are taking advantage of the sort of exponential change uh, in technology that seems to be, um, kind of making things possible that we, you know, it's hard to envision even a few years before. Mm -hmm. um, yep. like, and that seems to be constantly happening where it's like, oh, did you know this is possible now? It's like, really? No. Um, right. So it, it sounds like you're kind of taking advantage of that, of, the, of some of those leaps in technology, while at the same time, you all have a kind of foot rooted in sort of in the in the tradition or perhaps a love for the tradition. I don't know that you call, I don't know if you refer to yourself as a Buddhist or how you orient to that Buddhist identity. But um, it sounds like you have some kind of appreciation for, for where, where the, the methods come from. Yeah, I, I don't call myself a Buddhist and Bright Mind certainly isn't a Buddhist platform. I, I think, right. uh, I think, I mean, the way that my favorite word for this conversation is non-sectarian, which means that you take religious practices seriously uh, and you maybe throw yourself into them and you could even dedicate your life to them, but you don't, uh, you don't subscribe to a specific theology. You don't subscribe to a specific sect of religion. And so, yeah, so I guess I would say that um, there's a lot of respect for what religious traditions have figured out. And I'm more interested in um, integrating them and exploring you know, common threads between them. Yeah. Um, and the threads. yeah. Yeah. And so then this relates kind of to what, to one of the things that makes bright mind unique, which is, um, you know, a lot of the meditation apps out there mainly just provide content around 
stress and sleep. And yes. BrightMind does too. You know, you can in BrightMind you can customize the entire first 30 meditations towards stress. We and we'll give you awesome strategies for dealing with stress. So we do a really good job covering those bases, but we just we don't stop there. We 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 think of it as a more holistic kind of package. And meditation is so much more than stress relief and uh, improved sleep. And so we also support our users in bringing meditation into how they communicate with others. You know, like what kind of practice can you do while you're having a conversation? Mm, also, interpersonal practices. Yeah. Um, and also exploring, you know, questions of meaning and purpose. Like it's very it's just the case that if you meditate, often people have experiences of deeper meaning, uh, which is kind of hard to talk about, but it's just, you know, your experience is just more meaningful all of a sudden. And so that's important to talk about explicitly and not shy away from. Um, yeah. And also, yes. you know, positive behavior change and and most importantly, service to the world. Like our, our tagline is improve your life, improve the world. It's kind of aspirational. Whereas you know, you may not have that coming in the door, but we hope to kind of shepherd you towards a more engaged uh, practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I wanted to thank you also for hosting Emily uh, and I's yeah. meditations that we had recorded. And um, thank you for sharing them through the Bright Mind platform. It's been nice to hear people you know, reach out and occasionally share that they've been working with a meditation of ours and on bright mind. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. It's uh, it's an honor to host your content and, and people love it. We just released a, a bunch of it like a, a month ago or so, I guess. Yeah. That's so cool. And I, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like it, it'd be, it's important to share a little bit of the kind of background um, connection that I have with your partner, Christian, because mm -hmm. um, he was also a business partner of mine on an earlier venture called meditate IO. And, we were, I think, very, in a very similar kind of way, uh, exploring what it what it looks like to take Buddhist practices and kind of offer them in a sort of post-Buddhist frame, you know, that's intentionally secular but not lacking in depth. Trying to translate over the depth quality of the mm -hmm. sort of meditative experience, which you know, in my in my estimation of most secular stuff it's hinted at often if you have a good teacher it's certainly present through their presence but mm -hmm. it's not like laid out as a path like there isn't a clear path into the depths of consciousness through modern meditative methods that i've seen except for rare people like shinzen or you know there's some translators who are working on it but not everyone understands them you know because they're pretty right. deep and esoteric and so in a way part of how i see the work that that I was doing with that project and that you're doing now with bright mind is it's like an attempt attempt to translate the depth of wisdom that's present in those traditions in a way that um, is native and native to people's kind of cultural linguistic framework, native to their techno technology usage, uh, native to their lives. And I think that's a very interesting project because you're introducing people into that deeper wisdom um, path. And I think that's very needed when so many people are being introduced to meditation and mindfulness right now to have those deeper kind of places you can continue the journey. Uh, and, and, you know, Meditate.io for me didn't eventually, it eventually fell apart, I think in part because we were drawn back to the sort of Buddhist orientation and felt that the nonprofit structure would serve us best um, for that. And, and for me, that's also part of why I brought up the cultural appropriation, because what I found in my own exploration as, as a, a practitioner and as someone who, you know, who's relating to my own lineages, um, which are primarily based, you know, in Southeast Asia, that, and this is as someone who hasn't actually been to Southeast Asia, like I decided to do all my retreat practice in, in, in the, uh, in America. And, you know, for me, I sort of say, okay, well, my teachers received the teachings of the Buddha from their teachers and in, in monastic monastery environments in Thailand and in Burma, primarily in India as well. And they came back and their teachers very openly empowered them, you know, publicly and openly empowered them to teach and share. 
And they themselves, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, this generation of teachers, um, they really did a lot of translation work themselves and they changed how the Dharma was presented. One thing they didn't change is they kept they kept the teacher compensation linked to generosity. And to me, I always felt like that was a little outdated and out of touch, um, but I also appreciated it, you know, because it, <laughs> it meant being able to afford to go on retreat <laughs> as a right. 20-something. I'm sure you've probably taken yeah. advantage of a couple oh, of yeah. scholarships. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And um, that spirit, I think, for me, that was part of what I, I thought also needed to be translated. We live in a capitalist context, so we should translate yeah. that part as well. And then I felt kind of like a little bit of a, of a, a, you know, really going through a journey around that and coming back around to actually, I think there's something about this generosity model that we really desperately need also in the West. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, that was part of my own journey with this whole question of like how to, you know, where's the line? And I, I feel like there is a bit of a line around Buddhism and capitalism where I don't, I feel like it's, I don't feel good when I when I offer what Buddhist inspired teachings in a capitalist context anymore. But my but it's very you know it's great because my wife does make money in that context, and so some of our income comes from mindfulness training, you know, teaching mindfulness teachers, and she's great at that, and she's supporting a lot of mindfulness teachers who are supporting a lot of other people, and so it's, you know, and I think it's great that you all are doing what you're doing. So it's not a kind of, for me, it's not a moral judgment. Like everyone should do it this way. It's like, it's actually where my own path has brought me and my own heart has forced me, um, to go. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to share that. And also wanted to thank Christian for his total understanding and, and support of me going through that process, even though mm -hmm. at the same time I was using his money to, to figure this stuff out. So I have a, a huge respect for him and, and for your project and I've watched it develop. And I think it's awesome that there's uh, an app that's really trying to bring depth to the, to the, to the meditation app space. It's so sorely needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a lot. Yeah, I mean, a, a few. Well, yeah, a few things come to mind. Um, one is, I, you know, I was on a, I was talking to Tiago Forte at one point, who yes. I think you also know. He's a productivity online teacher, and he said that he experimented with online courses, self-paced online courses, and they didn't work very well. Whereas when he started doing cohorts. Um, and people learning together, then all of a sudden he had way better engagement in his online courses. And I, and I know that meditate.io was self-paced. And so I guess just one idea. To it was a mix there, actually. Like, we did, we did both. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. And I agree oh, with I that. The self-paced stuff with, didn't work as well. That's yeah, true. I was going to, yeah, I was, yeah, I was just going to say that like that may have been more successful, but who knows? There's so many factors. And and this is also something that's, you know, alive for us. We're, as an app, we're pretty much self-paced, right? You can just kind of do it whenever you want. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about whether that's the best way to go or not. Um, yeah, and in terms of making money on teaching meditation and that whole question, um, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to say. I, I agree that what you say about it's just a very different context. You know, what worked in ancient India may not work in modern America. Uh, there's not the same culture of understanding, like in of understanding how, like in, in Asia, it's very much expected that you donate to the local monastery. And right. I, I think okay. a lot of a lot of people don't even really think of it as a choice. It's just something that you do. Yes. And so to say like, well, oh, teachers should live off of donations in america it's like well it's not the same context uh and that's right that's right no and i i tried to do i tried to live off of pure donation for a little bit of the start of my teaching career and people interpret often donation as free by donation means it's free right yeah and it's just it's just a different yeah and the other thing i would say is a lot of these economic directions 
feel really good. And there, and there really is a pull that's good in these directions. But um, I think it's also important that, they, that often a lot of the progressive economic directions only work together. Like if we had universal basic income, then all of a sudden doing more donation-based work makes sense. And if there was more local money and more local economy, then that also enables more donation-based work. And so I also think it's interesting to think about, rather than having something kind of exist on its own, to have a more fully, uh, a more integrated uh, economic changes. Like, I'm, I'm, have you read uh, Sacred Economics by Charles Einstein? You, you know, I, I've had that book on my list, and and Charles used to live in in the same city that I'm in. I've seen run into him a couple times. I don't think he's here anymore, but uh, I have a huge appreciation for the work I've seen him, uh, I've seen from him, but I haven't read the uh, that book yet. No. Yeah, he he lays out a really interesting kind of macroeconomic theory, and one of his main points is that this isn't going to work if you just do part of it. You really have to group it all together. Um, like for example, like internalizing social and environmental costs for like uh, big oil. Like if, if the companies aren't paying for the environmental damage that they're doing, like it's going to be a lot harder for a young entrepreneur to, to make do. So just kind of leveling the playing field in that way. Um, I think is yeah. really, really interesting uh, to kind of take it all, all in one fell swoop. You know, something you're saying here is uh, it relates back to something I've I've contemplated as well um, with respect to the economic models and business models. That you know, there's a there's clearly a difference when an organization is more focused on platform building, and when they're more focused on community building. And it's not to say that there aren't organizations that can do both, but you know, typically in the, in the for-profit sector, you know, most of the money is, uh, is in the, it's in the platform building, you know, that's where the unicorns are. Um, and that's where you can reach kind of scale in terms of what you're talking about and what bright mind can do. You can reach everyone with a, with a mobile phone, right? I mean, it's pretty wide open. Um, and with like with Buddhist geeks, I think one of the differences of what we're doing, it's we're, we're focused, we are focused more on community building. And I think that's the only way these generosity models work, as you say, mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't right. work in the sort of impersonal, but massive global market space to mm-hmm. I think, unless you're just going to give something away for free, you know, it's, that's just the point of it. But if you're really putting energy and time and like, development money and, you know, attention into these things, making a really, really nice, you know, product and user interface, then it takes, you know, it takes money to do that. And so it makes sense to me that if you're trying to scale in the global marketplace, you need to interact probably with a capitalist frame. Whereas if you're someone like us, who's trying to do a little more like radical kind of community experimentation and and play around with economic models, and see if we can, you know, create practices that encourage generosity and support mutual aid and support, mm-hmm. you know, that I think that's, that's, a, that's a different aim. And, and for me, what I get ex- excited about is creating a community, really educating people on this and, and myself on, on, on the difference of how it feels to engage with generosity around something uh, and, the, and the downsides that come with it. Cause it, it cause it, the beauty of capitalism is you don't have to think about all these transactions, you know, they're just happening. Um, whereas if you're engaging with other people, you have to deal with the interpersonal dynamics of that as well. <laughs> Am I giving enough? You know, people, right. you know, all of that stuff comes into play. It's not like some pure clean thing. It's just different. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then that was pretty much our thinking was it's really expensive to build and maintain an app and we want to scale massively and we want millions of people on this thing. The only way we're going to support that is with a for-profit scalable model. Um, so yeah. And kind of, as we, like we talked about at the beginning, when we started the, the North star really is scaling quality meditation instruction. That's all we care about. And if the path to doing that is charging for it, then, um, that feels right. 
Um, yeah. And I, and I do think it is, I think it is important to say also that um, we're actually not making money at this point. So, so revenue from subscription goes directly into operating costs. You know, a lot of people have this idea that applications are you know, easy to build and then don't take any maintenance, but they're actually really, really complex and take lots of maintenance and are really expensive to build and maintain. And it just takes a ton of work. Um, there's huge costs associated with building and maintaining an application. And um, yeah, I mean, that kind of a whole nother vein that we could get into is the data mining and advertising based business models of some companies have completely skewed people's perception of value in the in the realm of technology. So because Facebook is free, they expect other apps to be free, but the only reason Facebook is free is because they're mining your data and what do you what do you really want? So in a way I think of what we're doing as a much more transparent and um, ethical transaction of value, which is look, we're working really hard on this awesome tool that you now have in your toolkit. And um, please, please help us keep the lights on, you know, um, r- rather than us do some kind of swanky data mining or something like that. I think it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, so for you, there's a, there's a kind of clear ethical line around um, mining people's data without, without them really understanding what that, what that means or the significance yeah. of that. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, such a widespread like you said, it's just a widespread expectation on the web that it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get yeah. these free service and all my data kind of just, I don't know who's doing what with it. <laughs> right. It's uh, yeah, it's scandalous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's cool. Um, yeah, this is, this is, um, you know, getting into the kind of meditation apps. I wanted to share a story with you, Toby. I was, I was sure. consulting on a, on an app project. I'm not going to mention the name because of the nature of the story, but I, I was invited to consult on this app project that was, um, you know, it was backed by a company that had success already and it seemed like they're going to be able to create a, a, a nice app. And I thought, oh, this is an opportunity to maybe help shape or influence the, you know, the direction of that app and maybe it'll be a better app, maybe. <laughs> um, and, and I knew it, would, it could have a big impact. So I, I got involved. Uh, I wasn't paid. For, I was paid in some stocks or something, which I eventually gave back. Uh, and the reason I gave them back is because uh, the one of the main things that I sort of encouraged was for them to use real life humans to, to record the meditations. That, and real life humans that aren't voiceover artists that are actually like right. deep meditators <laughs> and ideally even teachers. And uh-huh. um, this point of contention for me, it, it, I lost complete interest in the, in the project once I saw how they were recording meditation with voiceover artists and that they didn't understand this basic idea that like there's something in the words. It's not just the words. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I so appreciate, you know, about bright mind that, that it was built really, uh, in part to help amplify the kind of teaching voice of Shenzhen Young. And then you've brought in other teachers as well. Um, to me, that seems so central, like how are people building meditation apps and having voiceover artists or computer AI voices, like guiding us in meditation? It's so bizarre to me. What do you think? Yeah, it, it, no, of course it is. I mean, it's one of these things where if you're a serious meditator, it's just laughable to like, what you're having voiceover artists. Like, have you ever listened to a guided meditation before? Like half of the information, half of the inspiration, half of the gusto is in how they're saying the words. And so, yeah, it's, I've, I've heard of several other, yeah, I, I know of several app companies that are, that are using voiceover and it's just like, wow, I don't know what you guys are doing. So, I mean, that's an obvious design choice that we're like you know and also yeah so we're we're definitely in the camp of bring the people in to bring the teachers in to actually make the recordings because that's it's just the obvious choice yeah it, it makes such a difference and I, I love too. i think one of the innovations i noticed in what you all were doing is you've you've taken tracks and you've kind of figured out some tech around being able to like uh, shorten, compress, or elongate tracks. So you're working with the same instructions, but over different 
durations, that's a really nice way to kind of augment uh, a guided meditation. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I just finished a round of about 20 interviews with some of our users. And the most common thing that people mentioned about what they love about BrightMind is this ability to choose different lengths, which mm-hmm. I mean, to us, it's like, I don't know, I guess we've, we thought about that a while ago and just kind of released it and didn't think much of it. But it seems to me that people are really enjoying it. and. Um, yeah, there, there is some some interesting backend tech. Basically, what happens is that it's the same content, um, but the app calculates different pause lengths. So mm-hmm. if you want to do an hour meditation, it just extends the silences between the prompts. And it took some finagling to figure that out, but it's well worth it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, we, we thought about it. It's as simple as if you sit down to do a meditation, you may only have 15 minutes or you may be looking to do a long sit. And we want you to do that. You want, we want you to be able to listen to your next meditation, and but also just have the option of, of how long you want to sit. It's just, you know, practical. Nice. Um, I, I did notice that my uh, thirty-minute meditations weren't compressible. They they only seem to to go up and <laughs> and that made me think. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I guess mine have a lot of <laughs> a lot of words. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So one thing that Thank I you. noticed when I was I was kind of uploading your files to our server, and there are some limitations with the duration options based off of the original material. So, I mean, you had originally, they were meant to be 30 minute meditations, the, the ones that yeah. you're talking about. So it's, it's, hard, to hour, take, it's hard to take. Probably yeah. about right. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, it's hard to take any 30 minute meditation and make it a 10 minute meditation. You'd basically have to cut out a lot of the talking. But I, I would say uh, that you do have a lot of talking, a lot of guidance, which isn't necessarily bad. It's a stylistic choice. Some people like that. Yeah, it's very it's very true. There's so much of a stylistic thing among among teaching styles. Totally. Uh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. I guess the people who start podcasts end up being the more verbose style. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> no, I love it. Um so so tell me about the future. What are, what are you all excited about? What's coming next? So we have a new version of the app that we're designing, which is really exciting. And it's called Chimera. We name all of our app versions. The current version is called Dragon, but this next version is called Chimera, which is a three-headed beast from, I think, Greek mythology or maybe even pre-Greek mythology. Anyways, um, it's going to involve a rewrite of the what we call the core curriculum, which is a progressive series of meditations that really builds up your skills um, uh, in a, in a really awesome way. We get really good feedback about it. You know, it's like a 30 day experience, interactive experience where you make selections and the content tweaks depending on the selections that you make, but you're also getting onboarded to a really firm understanding of what mindfulness is, the different ways to practice, why you might practice Mm -hmm. mindfulness. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm diving back into that and rewriting it and it's going to be awesome. I, I, I collaborated with Shinzen Young, who we've mentioned, and also Juliana Ray, who's another meditation teacher. Uh, we, we, the three of us collaborated on that original content for like a year and, you know, picked apart every single word. And so we're really proud of this highly produced, highly thoughtful content, and it's going to get even better. Um, so it's going to involve a rewrite of that and also pretty major interface redesign. Um, it's hard to kind of explain, but we're going to streamline the interface and make it, um, just a little bit more clear and less choices, more simple. Um, and also give people some more guidance and structure after, so after they finish this initial set of 30 meditations, what's next and giving some people some more instruction and guidance around, how to continue using the app and we're thinking what we're going to say is basically like at this point you know what you're doing and it's actually most important for you to find a teacher's uh a personality and style that you resonate with mm. um mm. the sorting actually, hat yeah. problem yeah 
how do you how do you so, how do you how do you support people in finding their uh, their home yeah so i mean we'll be able to give them some suggestions based off of the selections that they've made so far but it's i don't know we'll we'll see how it unfolds we may come up with some more interesting um ideas but it's also just going to be like poke around you know read their bios and see who perks your interests and it's it's also just a process of trial and error and just empowering people a lot of what bright mind is is like encouraging people to appreciate the different perspectives and like appreciate and not um kind of talk down about other meditation techniques and other teachers and other styles but a real like appreciation of what works for you may not work for someone else it's kind of the ethos um in the app in general uh so that's coming and that's gonna um we're really excited about that we are kind of making prototypes and i'm writing scripts right now and um another thing we're pretty in, we're pretty excited about is we're partnering with nonprofits. so the 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 mission of bright mind is actually quite a bit bigger than just teaching meditation we're kind of focused on that right now but really the broader mission of bright mind is to help you establish uh, positive feedback between your meditation practice and your ability to make the world a better place. So the more you meditate, the more effective you are. And the more effective you are, the deeper your meditation practice becomes. So it's, you know, tying back into this theme of integration and engagement with the world and how can a meditation practice support an effective, skillful person, really. Um, so we're looking to partner, partner with nonprofits who are, are doing awesome work. Uh, and our, our basic thinking is like, you're already doing half of our mission. The least we can do is support you with the other half. So I guess I would say to listeners that if you are part of an organization that's making the world a better place, broadly, pretty broadly defined, you know, school, hospital, nonprofit, for-profit with a mission vision, you know, um, reach out or actually you could go to, to brightmind.com slash mission and apply to be a partner and we'll donate subscriptions to your volunteers and employees as just a way to support them in your work. We want to unlock more energy for the work that you're doing. Um, and we, we've had some pretty awesome partnerships along those lines. We, donated well over 500 subscriptions to hospital workers in Vancouver right when COVID hit and have gotten just really awesome feedback from doctors who are dealing with PTSD straight up, you know? Um, so that's, that's been really exciting and it, it's exciting for us because it's kind of our first, yeah, we're excited about doing more than just teaching meditation, but more about that engaging the world. And this is a, a project that allows us to explore that and talk to people who are maybe less focused on meditation and more focused on action. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.